Um, we are going to, in a moment, have the scripture on the, uh, on the screen. So if you haven't got a Bible, that's fine. But if you have got a Bible, you might like to have your own sort of words in front of you. Turn to Luke 5, um, and we're going to look in a minute at verse from verse 27, at the call of Levi. Uh, now, Levi is actually Matthew. It's another name for Matthew. So this is the calling of Matthew, one of the first followers of Jesus, one of the twelve uh, foundational apostles of the church. I've given the title to this short talk, It's Where You're Headed, Not Where You've Been. Because that's a very important principle that comes through in the Gospel. It's where you're heading, where are you going, that's in, in question. Not what you've done or where you've been or, or some of the disappointments and failures in the past. We've already heard that this morning. Those can be washed away and cleansed through Jesus. The issue is, do you know where you're going? Do you know that you're a follower of Jesus? Do you know what will happen when you die? Do you know that you're going to be with him forever? Has there a security in you and in in your hopes and expectations of the future because you know that Jesus is your Lord and you're walking your life with him? That's, That's sort of what I'm thinking about in this talk. But I want us to use Matthew to understand some wonderful things about the Christian faith and what it is to be a Christian. So, we're looking at Luke 5, and we're going to read a few verses, starting at verse 27. After this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector by the name of Levi sitting at his tax booth. Follow me, Jesus said to him. And Levi got up, left everything, and followed him. Then Levi held a great banquet for Jesus at his house. And a large crowd of tax collectors and others were eating with them. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law who belonged to their sect complained to his disciples, that's Jesus' disciples, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus answered them, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. I wonder how you would respond if someone with a really unsavoury past was put in a position of high leadership. Well, that's exactly what Jesus did with this guy, Matthew or Levi. He was going to become one of the 12 key leaders of the historic universal church that Jesus is building. He's still one of 12 unique men playing a part as foundation stones in the temple of the glorious church Jesus is still building. He was going to be a very important man for Jesus. And yet, he had a seriously questionable past. And we do need to know a little bit about what it is to make any sense of the story and catch the impact. You see, Matthew was a tax collector. Now, for us, tax collectors might not be popular, but we'd hardly see them as people we'd call unsavoury or villainous or things like that. We certainly wouldn't use the phrase that the Pharisees do use, which could be probably translated pretty accurately in colloquial terms as scum of the earth. People like this were the scum of the earth to a respectable Jew. Now, why is that? Well, you've got to imagine someone who is a mixture between a Nazi collaborator during the Second World War in occupied Europe, might be France or Belgium or somewhere like that, collaborating with the enemy that are oppressing and ruling. Someone who's a mixture of that 
and a mafia sort of person who goes in for protection rackets. That's what you're dealing with with tax collectors. They worked for the Romans. The Romans were thoroughly in charge of things in Israel. They were an occupying army. They ruled with a rod of iron. They were in charge. And they weren't kind and friendly people. It was pretty oppressive. And actually, for the Jews, the big deal on top of that was, of course, they were idol worshippers. They had no respect for Yahweh, for God. They were pagan and Gentile. And so you've got the double whammy, if you like. You've got this oppressive army, and they're totally godless people. Yet tax collectors were hand in glove with them. They worked with them in all sorts of ways. They were in their pay. They were close-knit with the Roman occupying force and their various puppet uh, governors they put in place. There were two sorts of tax collectors. There were those who worked directly for the Romans, collecting one sort of tax, and then there was another sort who bid for the privilege of collecting customs and tolls for a period. Now, these were wealthy people. And what they did was they put in bids for, say, let's say a year, because sometimes I think it was a year, to collect all the customs and tolls in an area. And when their bid was accepted, they paid the Romans a one-off payment, big amount of money. And that meant they were allowed to collect what they could in that year. That's where they're a bit like the mafia that I mentioned. They were allowed to do what they liked, in fact, on behalf of the Romans. The Romans were happy. They got their big wad of money. Now, you could do what you like. Imagine we're Winchester. Imagine we've been, uh, I don't know, invaded, overtaken. Imagine, it, you know, we lost the Second World War and it's ruled by a, a Nazi foreign sort of uh, jackbooting army. And these are English people, local people, who work with the occupying force and have a right to claim any sort of custom and toll from Winchester. Now, they are backed up by the army, so they've got uh, well-armed troops backing them up, but they can sit at the entrance to our city, and every time you want to go into your city, you have to pay them a toll or a custom. When you've bought things and you come out, they check what you've bought, they take a custom toll for everything you bought. They can decide how much they do. The whole point is they might pay out a half a million pounds or a million pounds for the privilege, but they'll hope to get ten times that back by screwing the population right down. They were not popular people. And they had this franchise, and once they had it, they made the most of it. They were wealthy, they were hated, they were crooked. Now, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, who also feature in this story, were people very committed to God's law, very committed to the Old Testament, fiercely uh, and purist in their, in their devotion to it, trying to make sure that they kept the law exactly as it was written. They were also, of course, very defensive of Israel and its unique position as God's special people. And so for them, all of this stank. Anything a tax collector did. Not only were the dealings with the Romans, which was extremely unpleasant, but the whole thing of taking money from God's people, just, just the sheer unfairness of it all, would have really offended them. And that Jesus, a good, upright, religious teacher, should even have a meal with Matthew and his colleagues, was amazing to them. They couldn't believe it. To have a meal with someone, to have table fellowship, meant you accepted them, meant you said, you're my friend. I accept you to sit down and eat. How can Jesus do that? But Jesus not only sat and ate with Matthew, 
someone as despised as that by upright Jewish society, he actually made Matthew one of the 12 key leaders of his church. What on earth is Jesus thinking of? What is he doing? He is demonstrating the gospel. He's demonstrating it. He is bringing it. He is doing something radical and wonderful. And I want us to learn three simple lessons from it. First of all, I want us to learn the heart of the gospel from this story. And the heart of the gospel could be summed up in verses 31 and 32. Jesus answered them, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. The gospel is all about grace. It's all about God's free forgiveness of sin. God's riches at Christ's expense. Someone once used that an acronym to describe grace. It's accurate. It's about a wonderful change, a radical way of dealing with the human problem. It's good news for everyone. And the human problem, the problem and its solution are summed up in those verses that we're looking at, 31 and 32. There is a problem with men and women across the planet. It is a universal problem everywhere. There's a virus in us, in our system, you might say. And that virus isn't swine flu. That virus is sin. That's the problem. That's what the Bible calls sin. Now, sin comes out in a multitude of ways. It comes out in pride, in greed, in lust, in envy, in hatred, in selfishness. And in fact, it impacts our behaviour in a great variety of ways. Not always ways that we recognise as obviously bad. But it is all polluting and tainting. No one, no Christian would say that everything everyone does is bad. That's not what we're saying. Peter would do some wonderful things. But there is a tainting, there is a polluting, there is a spoiling of everything. People can do noble deeds and there's a a, a nasty sort of pride or there's a greed or there's a lust that's also part of the mix. It's a horrible but sad fact that almost nothing is clean and clear. And that's why it's so easy to be cynical. That's why it's so easy to be critical. That's why, you know, our news can be full of our butts and this, because, yeah, everything has got this sourness running through it. The Bible calls it sin, a pollutant, a pollution. Laws are good. The best ones are God's laws. But that's not the problem is with law. It's the problem with us trying to keep them or wanting to keep them. And we don't. The real problem is right in our hearts And actually, the real root of it is that we have lost touch with God. We've lost touch with our Creator, the one who made us. We've rebelled, we've gone our own way, and we think it's great. But it isn't. It's disastrous. Now, here's the good news. God sent his Son, Jesus Christ, to provide a full and lasting solution to our problem. And it's here in these verses. Jesus says it. He said, I didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. I've not really come for the healthy, I've come for the sick. And this is one way the Bible describes it, that we're all sick. Like the virus, we've all got a problem. It's a sin problem, we're sin sick. And Jesus said, I've come to cure the sickness of sin. He's come to bring an answer. We've already heard about it. 
actually. Just let me remind you, baptism demonstrated it. Baptism is about a death, a burial and a resurrection. And it's about Jesus' death, his burial and his resurrection. And that's the way God has provided an answer for our sin. That on Jesus, our sins were laid. He bore our sins in his body on the cross. And he died for us. He died, it was complete, it was real, he was buried. But on the third day, he rose again victorious. The whole debt had been paid. Everything had been done that needed to be done to cure the sin sickness, to remove the penalty, to change the situation. And he rose again in the power of an endless life. And the Bible says that that job is done. Sin has been paid for. And you can enjoy a completely fresh start now that goes on into eternity by putting your faith in Jesus and what he did when he died and rose again. So baptism is a very appropriate way to start the Christian life because it's saying, I believe Jesus died for me. When he died, I died. When he rose, I rose. The forgiveness, the new life is a free gift. Your past can be completely forgiven, whatever you've done. And you can have an eternal life, a new heart, new spirit, and a new life forever that starts from the moment you put faith in Jesus. And what matters then is not your past, but your future with him. And that is grace. God's riches at Christ's expense. But there is one little point, of course. To enjoy it, you need to know you need it. And to receive it, this forgiveness, this new life. So in verse 32 that we read, when Jesus said, I have not come to call the righteous but sinners to repentance, he's not suggesting that some people don't need this saving, some people don't need this curing, they haven't got the sin problem. He's talking about self-righteousness. That some people don't realise they need it. It's like some people are sick but don't know it. Some people think they're healthy when they're not. And the Pharisees were in that category. They thought they didn't need saving at all. They could see the tax collectors needed, probably in their case, they needed executing, they thought. But actually, they needed something, but they were fine. And that is a huge problem. Now, you might say, well, we don't have Pharisees today. No, we don't, but people don't recognise the problem. A few years ago, there was a national survey, I believe it was in our country, And 77, it was quite widely done, 77% of people asked said they believed in heaven. So 77% of people believed in heaven. 76% thought that they had a good or excellent chance of getting there. You see, people make assumptions that, well, yeah, I believe in heaven. And and everybody said, well, I'll be all right. I mean, I, I sort of roughly live up to my own standards. I don't mean any harm. I, you know, I do a bit of this and a bit of that. That's a general attitude. But actually, that isn't good enough. I mean, even these Pharisees, they had very high standards indeed. And uh, they would have looked extremely upright, moral people. But Jesus makes it clear that their sort of holiness just is irrelevant. The holiness of rigorously keeping certain laws of keeping aloof from doubtful characters like tax collectors, keeping yourself free from any taint or, or compromise with them, just living uh, with other Pharisees purely to the law, that isn't going to solve the sin problem. It's a deeper disease than that. It's something inside that needs dealing with. The remedy is going to come in a different way. 
And Jesus is eager to mix with people who understand they need a deeper remedy, which is why he loves mixing with these tax collectors and sinners. He doesn't like what they do, but he likes their openness to an answer. They know they're sick. They know they have a problem. And that problem he's going to bring an answer to. I'd just like to say to you this morning, are you aware, whoever you are really, are you aware of having a need for God to do something in your life? Or are you one of those people who say, 76%? No, I think you know, I'll be all right. I know, think I'm pretty good, really. Are you aware of doing things that you wish you didn't do? Of thinking things you wish you didn't? Are you aware of failing to do things that you wish you could do? That you know you should? If you are really seriously like that, you're exactly the sort of person Jesus loves to mix with. Jesus said, these are the people I've come to talk to. People who know they need some help. Who know they need some answer to the state they're in. They're the ones I came to. The ones who feel they're okay and that Jesus isn't really very important to them, there, there's not much he can do or will do. He said, I've come to call the sick, not the healthy, the ones who think they're healthy. Let's quickly move on. I want to say more on that. I want to say two other things before I finish. I want you to notice the cost of following Jesus. I've called it the cost of discipleship. And I suppose it's illustrated in verse 28. Matthew, Levi, got up, left everything, and followed Jesus. Salvation is free. The grace of God is totally free. But it only comes to you if you will put faith in Jesus and follow him. Baptism, again, demonstrates it. As you are baptised, you're saying, I have died to my old life and I now live to follow Jesus. He is my Lord and my Saviour. Now that is a sort of open commitment you make to him. And it can have, at one level, quite a high price. It certainly did for Matthew when he followed Jesus. Some of Je- All Jesus' followers paid a price, but some of them, it seems to me, paid a higher price. And funnily enough, I think Matthew is probably one of them. The fishermen who followed Jesus, they were sort of small businessmen really. If this venture of following Jesus didn't work out, they could always go back to their fishing. And actually, if you know your Gospels, you know that some of them did that for a brief time. After the death of Jesus, and they were a bit despairing and a bit not sure what to do and confused, Peter and some of the others went back fishing. I tell you, Matthew could never go back to his old career. The Romans, Herod, would have taken no notice of him at all. Matthew burnt his boats 100%. More, actually, than the fishermen disciples. They had a certain control. They could go back and fish. Matthew would never have been taken on again as a tax collector. He left it once and for all. Now, actually, he probably paid an immediate high price. Remember what I described to you at the beginning? He had possibly paid a huge sum of money for the right to collect customs and dues for a set period of time, maybe a year. That's why he was able to walk away from it. If he'd actually been working directly to the Romans, they probably would have had something to say about him walking away. But he walked away from a lot of money and a lot of privilege to collect money. And probably the Romans just thought he was mad. Shrugged, they'd had their wad of money. Next time the franchise came up, they'd offer it to somebody else. But Matthew walked away from a a cash machine. 
He walked away from his toll booth, his tax booth. He walked away from something he paid to have. It was a costly decision, but he knew he'd got to make it. He wanted to follow Jesus. He didn't want to compromise. That was his past, his grubby, greedy past. And he was leaving it once and for all with no looking back. It was a serious decision. Jesus said, I called, I've come to call sinners to repentance. Jesus doesn't just call us to believe in him. He calls us to repent. Now, repent means turn around, change, go in a different direction. And that's exactly what Matthew did. Being a Christian is following Jesus, which inevitably means changing direction. You can't say, I still want to be a tax collector, I want to be greedy, I want to be a liar, I want to screw people for money, but I'd like to be safe with you, Jesus, for heaven. It just doesn't work. It's not about buying your salvation, it's just, it's just an impossibility, it's a contradiction, you can't do that. You turn from the sin to follow Jesus. You, f- you have a new life, and it means you live a new way. And that's what happened for Matthew. It was a cure And it was a change, a radical change. But don't think Matthew was miserable about it, because this is my third and final point. I want to look at the joy of conversion. Look at verse 29. Then Matthew held a great banquet for Jesus at his house, and a large crowd of tax collectors and others were eating with them. I think it'll go up on the screen. Then Levi held a great banquet for Jesus at his house, and a large crowd of tax collectors and others were eating with them. Matthew gave up wealth and position of a sort, certainly with regard to the Romans, and certainly a privileged position. He gave all of that up, and yet he was absolutely elated. He was excited. He was delighted. He saw it as the best decision he'd ever made, and he wanted to celebrate it. He threw a big party. He invited all his friends, his tax collector's friends. He'd found something infinitely better than tax collecting, and he wanted his friends to know about it. He he wanted them to meet Jesus. It says he held a a great banquet for Jesus. At his house. Just notice the words. He held a great banquet for Jesus, a big party. Now, in my commentary, it tells me that the original Greek word for great banquet there is is only used a couple of times in the New Testament, and it always means a big party with many guests, which would only have applied to wealthy people. Nobody else could do it. So now we've got another angle on Matthew. Not only has he walked out on a very lucrative career, which he can never go back to, he wastes a small fortune on a party because he's just become a Christian. Is that not exciting and radical? The guy has just given up a career. He's maybe thrown away hundreds of thousands of pounds, by our reckoning, for the rest of the year, collecting tax, and he spends another whole wad of money having a party because he wants his friends to meet Jesus. I think something's happened to this man, don't you? I think there's a joy in him. He didn't see this as a wake, as a funeral. This was a celebration. He had no regrets. He was going for it. He wanted his associates to meet this wonderful man, Jesus, who'd radically changed his life. 
Dear old Bishop Ryle, who I love reading his commentaries, a Victorian bishop, he says this, a converted man will not wish to go to heaven alone. A converted man will not wish to go to heaven alone. Do you tell others about Jesus? If you're really converted, you don't want to go to heaven alone. I challenge you. I'm not talking to those who aren't Christian. I'm talking to those of us, many of us in this room are. I think Matthew is a real challenge. He had no problem with telling his friends. Many of them probably thought he was mad, weren't quite sure what he'd done, but he wanted them to meet Jesus on the, I suppose, assumption that they would find out then why he'd done it. If you meet this wonderful guy, you'll understand for yourself. He felt all his material losses were nothing compared to the gain of finding Jesus. I'd say to you, Matthew was really converted. Now, I'm going to take a moment here because I think there's a challenge here for all of us. And I was preparing this, and it's only a short talk round the baptism. I felt this bit most challenging for me, for every one of you in this room, everyone who's a Christian, and everyone who's thinking of being a Christian. So just hear me carefully. I think Matthew is a challenge. I think sometimes we behave, we who are looking at being a Christian, we who are coming to these services or coming to Alpha, we behave as if we were weighing up, taking on a new insurance policy. We are thinking, is it worth it? We're thinking, how much will it cost me? What's the small print? Will it have a downside? Is it really worth being a Christian and following Jesus? I want to think about it again. I want to go to another Alpha. I want to go to another service. I want to think about it again. Can I say to you, you need a radical abandonment to Jesus. You need to say, I am leaving the past. I've found a, a wonderful treasure and I don't care if the small print, I'm going for it. It's not a new insurance policy. It's eternal life. It's being saved from hell to go to heaven. But what about the rest of us who've already found Jesus? We sometimes behave as if what we had was about as exciting as an insurance policy. You do, so do I. You behave as though it was about as exciting as an insurance policy. A nice thing to have. I've been quite sensible to have it. It's not that exciting. Oh, occasionally I mention it if somebody's interested in insurance policies. That I don't find Matthew like that. He had a party. He blew money on it. He said, come along and meet Jesus. He's wonderful. I said, what have you done about it? Well, I'll forget tax collecting. It's cost you half a million quid. Never mind. You meet Jesus. He'll revolutionise your life. He'll forgive your past, all your things that are screwing you up inside, all the guilt about the people you've fiddled and lied to, the, the violence you've indulged in to get the money. It somehow will wash you all clean. It'll wash you clean and you have a whole new future. I'm following him. I'm never going back to tax collecting. Come and have a party. What an attitude. Come on, we all ought to be challenged, didn't we? I'm challenged. I think, am I really converted? I hope I am, but am I? Are you really converted? I hope so. Real conversion has got a deep joy in it and a deep conviction that Jesus is the best thing anybody could ever get to know. That really, it would be better if every living soul knew Jesus. Do you have that conviction? 
That even the people who think you're mad, you'd rather they thought you were mad than that they didn't know about Jesus. That's what it is to be truly saved. There's a reckless joy. Do you know, I believe we could all do with a bit more breaks off, abandoned, joy fueled recklessness about our faith. Amen? Thank you. Amen, Simon. I believe we could all do with a lot more breaks off, abandoned, joy fueled recklessness to our faith. Please take that home with you. Because that's what we need to be like. I think Matthew provokes us all. Now, I don't know if you're here this morning and you aren't a Christian. If you're not, I'd like you to come and talk to us about it. You may say, well, I'm not really ready to become. Let me assure you of something. I, this is my personal conviction. I believe many others would hold it. I would not ever want you pressurised into being a Christian. I really do not. Why? I don't want you converted unless it's like Matthew. I don't want you... I'm not an insurance salesman trying to persuade you to do it so I've got another head on my trophy cabinet or another person in my church. I want you to come with a joy-filled abandon to Jesus. But if you'd like to know more, and that's all we'll do, it will give you a little pack or tell you about Alpha Course, come and see me afterwards. If you want to ask Jesus into your life, I'd be delighted to pray with you. But you've got to want it because you know it's what's good for you. Amen?